Welcome to Optimizing, the podcast about leading Africa's digital future. I'm Professor Barry Dwalatsky. And I'm Karen Gammy. Season two has the theme, Receiving and Passing the Baton. We're in conversation with people who have shaped or will shape Africa's digital future. Each conversation draws on the metaphor of life as a relay race. Our guests will talk about how they received the baton, who and what influenced them as they started life's journey. We will then discuss their own journey, how they nurtured and grew the baton in their hands. Finally, we will ask them about what it is that they will pass on to the next generation of leaders and experts. Today we are in conversation with Cliff DeWitt. Clifford graduated in 1996 from Wits University with a degree in electrical engineering. And I guess my claim to fame is I taught Cliff up until 1996. His passion for computing led him into financial services where he worked in a team that launched one of the world's first internet banking solutions in 1998 with Ned Bank. Um, he joined Microsoft in 2000 and in 2009 Cliff took on a director role, running one of seven segments within Microsoft South Africa. In this role, amongst other things, he developed and launched the South African BizSpark startup program, which mentored an incredible 3,000 startups. He managed the Microsoft relationship with South African universities. He also managed the DevOps, the DevOps business in South Africa. And he ran and keynoted several very important conferences, including TechEd, DevDays, and BuildTour. Cliff spent 18 years at Microsoft, and then he decided to leave and start his own startup business in the digital space. And that's his current role as CTO and co-founder of a new digital business. Apart from this, Cliff holds two board positions at Wits University on both the board of my center, the Joburg Center for Software Engineering and the Tsimolohong Digital Precinct. Here he contributes both to his university, gives back to his university and he helps individuals and companies in the industry. Cliff is also a regular contributor on The Money Show on Radio 702, so that's where you might have heard him. And on this, on the, this talk show with Bruce Whitfield, he is um, invited a few times a year to contribute. He's also a keynote speaker, and he frequently speaks at developer and technology conferences. So Cliff, thanks so much for joining us. We have based this podcast season on the metaphor of life as a relay race. Through your professional life as a leader within our local digital economy, you have carried a baton that, that really represents the knowledge and experience that you have gained on your long journey. Um, and before we discuss passing it on to my co-presenter, Karen, who we'll introduce in a minute, and to her generation, can you discuss who passed the baton on to you? How did you receive this baton? So in other words, what was the young Cliff DeWitt like? Um, tell us about your heroes and the role models who shaped you both in life and in the world of digital technology. Hi Barry and hi Karen and I think thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's really exciting to be here. Um, yeah, it's a great question, Barry. I guess um, an interesting one. Um, I suppose one that, that has some pause. Uh, my, my life journey was kind of interesting, right? Because I think I think as a as a young as a young person uh, at, at school level. I guess I felt always felt a little out. I was always sort of quite geeky and quite quite techy, and 
And, and although some of my teachers, I think, got me, I think certainly my peers at school honestly thought I was a little odd. Um, I guess my, 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 my role models in those days were, I think my, my, my family and certainly my dad and my uncle had a big influence on me. My dad, in terms of thinking independently and, and questioning the status quo, and my uncle was quite a big influence on me because he had a bit of a technology background, an electronics background, and he helped me kind of with my fascination for electronics and, and, and computers. Um, so that was kind of my formative years. I must say, when I, when I got to university, it was really an eye opener because it, it was it was like meeting my people, if I could put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, I all of a sudden felt like I wasn't the strange person in the room, and I had uh, a lot of people who thought and 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 questioned the world the same way I did, and it was really a liberating experience. Vits uh, was a great uh, time in my life, um, certainly a formative years. And uh, I think many of the professors, um, yourself and, and Professor Jandrell, were a huge influence um, on my way of thinking at that point in time. I think there I, I kind of got a deeper understanding of, of sort of the industry and computing. And I think if I were to call out sort of two people that, that really stood out for me at that time, I think to look at the work that Alan Turing did and how he pioneered computer science in the early days. And, and certainly his personal story really resonated with me in, in what he achieved, even under the circumstances um, of, of his lifestyle and, 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 and the environment that he lived in. And then uh, uh, John von Neumann, for me, was also a very interesting person. I'm just very talented, uh, obviously one of the last brilliant mathematicians of our era. And just what he achieved in his life were always really, really inspirational to me. So those were kind of my two sort of big computing um, heroes. I guess just to build on that a little bit, um, sort of in the modern world, um, I, I obviously, I, as you said in the beginning, I joined Microsoft. But uh, even before that, I think Bill Gates was certainly a, a very big sort of, I wouldn't say hero, but I, I, I appreciated his position. And I think looking where he's gone today with, with the foundation, what I really admire about him is that you know many people who make a lot of money just end up using their money for their own personal benefits. And I and I always admired Bill as a person for for having first of all the ability to build an incredible company, but then the humility and the vision to start a foundation and, and invest back into society. So he, he certainly is a is is sort of a a, a corporate or a business hero of mine. And then mm-hmm. if I if, if I could indulge you just on one or two more. Uh, Jeffrey Hinton, I, th- I think, the father of modern AI. Um, the more I read about him and the more I followed him, I, I really, really have a lot of respect for, for him. Uh, I think having the vision of what AI could become and what neural networks meant and being sort of trying for so long to get it right, sort of losing the respect of his peers and still being determined to prove himself right and eventually doing it kind of in the early 2000s, I think for me is really a, an interesting story of somebody with determination and what can be achieved when somebody really believes in, in what they do. Uh, the, the, the last thing I would say, and you kind of interlude it, it in in in, uh, in your build up, is that I think many of us are influenced both by by sort of heroes, but also by local mentors. And I have been very fortunate in my career to have some really incredible people mentor me and manage me. So. I think just two that I'd like to call out. I think one that you've spoken to on this podcast, Mateta Nyati, was my manager for many years at Microsoft. And Mateta was really an incredible individual to work for. He, he really taught me a lot about myself, about respect for other people, about responsibility and leadership. Um, and and I, I really saw him as a, man, as a mentor and a manager. And I was incredibly lucky to work for him. And he, and he, really, did, uh, he really did grow my career. And my last manager at Microsoft was a, was a man called Zoeb Hussein. Um, and Zoeb really is an incredible individual. I think he, he, he taught me the blend of being a good business person, but doing good at the same time. Um, you know, Zoeb still works at, and sits on the Mass Center board. He does a lot of social responsibility work and really taught me a lot about, as I said, sort of the, the combination of the powerful combination of doing good while doing good business. So that's kind of just a summary of sort of my heroes and my and my mentors. Um, and, and, and just I guess I've been lucky along my journey to have that. So it's interesting that you talk about Turing and others and people you read about. Um, 
and it 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 kind of says that you're not that you're atypical of our normal of our of most of our engineering students who don't read much. Uh, when you were young, did you read a lot? Were you an avid reader? Yeah, so it's an interesting point you raise, Larry. Um, I, I read I read a lot, but I, I will say I'm not a great end-to-end book reader. I think I'm, I'm much more a curious reader. So I I kind of, I guess I embrace the internet reading philosophy more. So I've always been a big fan, I think personally, of understanding the bigger picture. And I think my, my fascination with Turing and with von Neumann and guys like, like Jeffrey Hinton is, is always kind of the questioning why we are here today. So I, I, to be perfectly honest, I'm, I'm not great with biographies. I do read the odd one, um, but, but, I, but I, I find there's, you know, we are spoiled for information these days. So mm. uh, I, I find myself often spending time behind my computer, sort of on Wikipedia, following articles, and, and reading about the background without necessarily going and reading everybody's biography. So I, I guess I'm a strange reader. I'm, I'm a little bit more of a of a on demand reader than I am uh, than I am to sit down on a Sunday afternoon and, and, and work through a book. And I guess that's just always been me. I, I, I guess maybe that is a little bit of the engineering side coming out than, than, than the more typical. But that's kind of the way I've stayed current. Yeah. So there's been quite a lot written about um generation z or whatever they are now who read in a very different way they don't read books from cover to cover they read through hyperlinks uh does that ring a bell um does that ring a bell for you karen absolutely yes i feel like i have the attention span of a small dog and like it's very easy to get into like a rabbit hole so you read something you're like oh that sounds cool let's find out more and it's just easier to do that in like a a web sort of interface than just with a book (laughs) yeah it's very true so cliff you're a person before your time exactly (laughs) (laughs) so um cliff just to ask you a bit more about your background and the fact that you as a Witz electrical engineer, and in fact, like many of our electrical engineering graduates, went on not to work in hardcore engineering, but in, um, in a bank, in, um, in IT in a bank, and then on to Microsoft. And how well did your Witz electrical engineering training prepare you for that world you went into? Yeah, it, it's it's a very interesting question, Prof. And I actually uh, I reflect on that quite often. Actually, funny enough, I, I think you know one thing I learned when I went to university or was uh, you you had to learn was very quickly that it was not uh, it, it, it's not about memorizing or speed feeding the content that you have. And and actually a little later on, sort of third fourth year, you realize it's not really that much about the content, but it's more about the process of learning. And I think once I understood that, it was actually an incredible learning platform because I think the thing I took away from from in, from engineering and my degree was that is the ability to learn and the ability to be curious and the ability to teach yourself. And I think once I understood that, it was incredibly powerful because yes, I think we all have talents and we all have. Uh, we, we all have places that we like to work and f- feel fulfilled. But if you don't have the ability to learn, I think you're going to be very, you're going to be in a very dangerous position. And I think especially as the world moves forward, because I think we can argue that the ability to learn new skills and stay current is becoming an ever increasing problem. And so for me, my, 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 my university education at Wits was really, I look back on it and think of it was, a, it was an education in how to learn, not so much in what it actually taught me in bits and bytes at that point in time. And I think when I understood that, it really was very powerful for me. Um, I think it also taught me a lot, of, a lot of the softer skills, right? It also taught me, I think I mentioned in the beginning, that, that I sort of found my kindred spirit, if I could call it that. Other people like me, you know, um, who thought like me, um, who, who who understood the world or looked at the world like me. And I think that is also incredibly powerful because you also realize that 
no person is successful or unsuccessful by themselves, right? I think you realize what it's like to be part of a team, how to rely on each other, how to how to work as a team. And that was also an incredibly powerful learning experience um, at my university days and taught taught me how to work in teams and I think puts you in good stead in a in any type of work environment, whether it's in a corporate or a startup, any of those environments. So, so yeah, it, it was really, really powerful. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, Karen, in terms of your journey, how does this relate to how you got into digital? Mm, so, so I think there's definitely some some parallels in terms of like the nonlinearity. So, uh, Cliff, maybe just for your benefit, um, so I'm a data scientist uh, in the AI team at APSA, um, yeah. and and my sort of academic training is in philosophy and economics. So, not in one of the cool, sexy kind of STEM degrees. Uh, and then I somewhat organically kind of found my way into the job that I'm doing now. Um, and so I guess I'm kind of curious to understand sort of how common was this air quote unconventional route in the like 1990s slash early 2000s versus how common is it now? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting perspective. And and um, I, I think it's probably a little more common now. You know, the interesting thing yeah. about about and I guess uh, about the way careers are evolving today is, you know, there, there is always sort of the the prerequisites to do the job right so if you're going to become a developer you need to know a little bit about development right mm. but then there is the ability to learn on the job and the ability to 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 bring a different perspective to the table and i think certainly that that was true even in in my early days right i i started out i started out obviously with an engineering degree i worked um in a couple of real proper electronic environments i spent some time in a in an offshoot of Danelle called ATE doing real electronic design. But I always sort of had a desire to do software. I really, yeah. like software was always like, I thought as the, the, I always gravitated to writing code rather than building mm -hmm. stuff. And, 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 you know, my first, my first job at NetBank, I had never programmed in C++ real properly for a career. And uh, I mean, I was lucky enough to be given an opportunity. So I kind of learned that skill on the job, right? I, I yes, I dragged along some of my formal training, but a lot of what I learned there was what I learned when I was in the environment. And I think that is true of a lot of things today. So, so I think a background like yours, in some cases, is really beneficial because it, it brings a perspective that that some other people don't have around the table or in the team. And I think I talked about that earlier as well, the, the value of diverse teams. I think many software technology teams these days, just because of the reach of software, have to look at the social aspects, the people aspects, the yeah. consequential and the causal aspects. And I think having a diverse team, even though you work on the same project, is probably not, not a benefit. I think it's essential these days. Mm. You are singing my song. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Louder for those in the back. <laughs> so, Cliff, you moved on from being a developer to more senior positions. And in many cases, moving on to higher positions in the profession mean, means moving out of technology. But given the work you were doing and your role at Microsoft, you stayed very involved in the tech side of things. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit about how technology has changed since the 1990s when I taught you. So at that time in the 1990s, what the developer had was a text editor, a compiler, and maybe a few libraries, and that was it. They, they developed everything from the bottom up. And at that time also, I was very involved in trying to bring the idea of object orientation to South Africa. And um, it, was a, it was quite an uphill battle to convince people to use OO. And one of the ways that we tried to sell OO was about reuse. It was the idea of um, reusing big chunks of code. And if I look at software development now, it's all about reuse, so and, and it's not only reuse of code, it's reuse of whole designs. And um, so I, I wonder if you could speak a bit about how the world has changed in terms of software development over these years from the 1990s to now. 
it's such a great question prof and 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 one actually i i think about a lot and have talked publicly about a lot so i appreciate the question because i uh, the the point of view that i that i have on this is kind of i i like to go back to simple analogies and um i i i use the analogy of, of lego i think when lego first started out they really were just a bunch of building blocks right lego kind of started with blocks and if you bought a pack of lego as a kid you got a, a pack of blocks and you could get some red ones and some yellow ones but really what you built with those blocks was your imagination so you got the blocks and you put it together and i think that kind of is a great analogy for sort of the formative years of software where you had a language you had maybe a couple of apis but you really needed to build the stuff pretty much yourself as these things matured um you know things started evolving and people's demands started evolving so if again if you look at lego and i look at i, I like to use my kids as an, uh, as an analogy so i've, I've got a i've got a, a 10 year old and a, and a 13 year old and if i look at their lego today you know my, my 13 year old playing with some robotic lego and my 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 daughter is playing with with her lego friends and those lego those lego packs that they made today are quite specific right they uh they, they, they come in a pack and they, they have some very special blocks like windows and doors and things like that, um, very specific characters, and that allow you to build something quite specific. And I think that's kind of where software is going. It's becoming more and more specific. So we make that a little bit more concrete and kind of look at, at, the, at the way the world is working. I think your vision on, on, on object orientation and reuse is really becoming kind of almost mainstream now. And I think nothing nothing has done more to sort of drive this in the last little while than that of the cloud. So if you look at what the cloud has done for many software developers, is it's really it's really kind of turned things into platforms as we call it. So now I think software developers and the term software developer maybe even in its own definition is becoming a very, very broad term. Because if you look at all the all the kind of different categories of software development now at the highest level many of the big vendors now and and many of the big sort of software institutions and some of the universities are starting to talk about the concept of a business developer where you don't even have to understand a language but you can describe a problem sometimes visually sometimes with a bit of pseudocode and start to create a software solution through composition. So visual design frameworks to decide, define a business problem and define a piece of software to, to solve that business problem. You know, incorporating things like a little bit of robotic process automation, a little bit of workflow, a little bit of a user interface that's simply composed through drag and drop can, can be used to solve many, many business problems. And so that's kind of at the top end. Then if you kind of drop a level below that, there's this concept of the cloud developer and the cloud developer of today's world really is in some ways just composing solutions. They're using these high level building blocks that the cloud today offers and it's very, very rich, right? So if you look at, if you look at what the big software vendors are doing today, they're providing these really amazing capabilities, but wrapped up in a cloud service. So you can step up to, you know, the Amazon cloud and get a document recognition service that does a really good job of OCRing, understanding the form and just providing you the data. That, yeah. that would be a really, really tough problem to solve if you had to just create that service. But as a cloud developer, you can just simply step up and use that and compose a solution using these high level building blocks straight out of cloud services. It's so wild that you actually use that example of AWS's um, like text recognition service or, or TextStrack, because that's literally one of the problems we're facing at work is like we have an OCR problem that we're trying to solve and we've built like an in, in-house solution. Right. Uh, and order to do like our due diligence like we obviously want to test and compare it to stuff that's out in the market and like there's a whole aws that does a really fantastic thing and the only thing that we as like data scientists really need to know is like how best to use apis which is a little bit like what what is the point of our jobs right now <laughs> so that was a, an interesting example that you used 
it's such it's, it's exactly Karen and and I think that's in, in some ways it, you know it evokes so many questions right you said it right now it's like well if we aren't creating the service what is our value and it's yep. it's such an interesting question that because I think it brings us back to some South African sort of I guess biases and and I think we're whereas a development community are very heavily biased by not invented here syndrome or I don't own it therefore it's not good enough syndrome and I think honestly, sometimes that holds us back, right? Because if we don't, we're to embrace those services, you know, under the right economic situation. So we need to make sure that it's, that it's, that it works for us from a business point of view. There is a tremendous amount of other value you could add to your organization or to your startup because, you know, those things are really becoming utility. There's no competitive advantage these days in creating a better, you know, OCR service because yeah. there are people who, literally have doctorates and PhDs and spend all their lives building those services. So you're never going to do it better than they can, but you will understand your business much better than they ever will. So if you can use those services, you can create a competitive advantage for your organization. Exactly. That's the Which way is to... exactly the point you were talking about, about, you know, the diversity of skill set and, and, and thinking because yeah, exactly. it doesn't help to just have people who have like the algorithmic prowess. You've got to have all the other stuff too. That makes sense. Exactly. And, and, and look, and, and, and I guess that's also why I made the comment that I think the world of, of the developer, the term developer is becoming very broad now because mm. yes, I think there are some of us who will just simply consume cloud services and compose them. But that's not to, that's not to undermine that if somebody really wants to work on an operating system, there are still a role for low level developers who want to spend their days creating operating systems or working on actually you know, day and night producing the next greatest AWS or Microsoft Azure OCR recognition engine, absolutely those roles exist. They just become a lot more specialized and a lot more deep. And I, and, and I think that's, I guess, in some ways, the diversity that and, and the opportunity that we have. The role of the software developer is really becoming as diverse as a business developer creating a business solution or a really low-level, probably C++ assembler developer who really wants to work day and night on making the next best operating system or kernel. That's the breadth of the opportunity we have as software yeah. developers, which is fantastic, mm. right? And so yeah. you've, you've kind of touched on it quite broadly and, and quite well as well. Um, but like, obviously, you know, there are skill sets that are required by like, you know, uh, AI and in, in this environment. Um, versus kind of the, the skill set that was required for like a Java developer kind of yeah. back in the day. Yeah. Uh, and you've spoken about like, you know, needing to have like kind of your business hat on as well when you're doing like, you know, AI as well. But in terms of like kind of the specific technical skills that you think data scientists or AI developers or whatever we're going to call them, what do you think that looks like right yeah. now? So, so I have an interesting perspective on AI and um, let me start with, kind of my simplistic definition and Karen, keep, keep me honest. So, <laughs> but this is how, how I, I like to think about it. You know, in, in the good old days, and you kind of use the Java developer analogy, right? In the good old yeah. days, developers were like the, the, the role and, and what the code did was reasonably well understood. You kind of had a, had a problem. Somebody gave you something and said, okay, I need a program to do A, B, and C. And then you chose your platform, you chose your, chose your language, and you wrote a computer program that solved that problem or did that thing. Sure. sure. And the machine did exactly what you told it to do. It was in my world, it's it, it, the way I think about it is, is it was deterministically correct, right? So yes. you told it what to do and it did it. Hundreds. I think the world of AI fundamentally changes the way we think about software. Because if you think about the process of creating an AI algorithm, what you're really doing is you're taking a model and then you're collecting a bunch of data and you're choosing a, a model that's specific to the problem you want to solve. And now you are training that model with data and you're telling that model you know, what is correct and what is incorrect. And, and through that training process, you are effectively creating an algorithm. Mm -hmm. the, the challenge, though, is that you are not deterministically creating the algorithm. The algorithm is getting cr trained by the model. The neural net is, is, is adjusting its biases and creating a model that 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 can solve your problem. Yep. But, but but the big challenge with this is that you are as the developer in quotes or the data scientists are simply facilitating the training of the model. You're not actually writing the algorithm. And so I yep. think the skills that are acquired in some way are similar, but in some ways are fundamentally different. 
because now you need to think very carefully about where your data is coming from that you use to train your model. You need to think about the data set and is it representative of yep. the problem that you want to solve? You need to think about things like bias in your data set. Um, and bias can be, you know, bias can be a very deceptive thing. You may think you have a very, dis, you know, very well represented data set, but it could cut out, you know, data from a geographic area, a race yeah. group, a population, a certain yeah. population, which would radically alter the algorithm that you produce. And I think there's been many documented examples of bad training data causing bad algorithms. I also think it's a it's become a lot more of a social skill uh, and, and hence i think your formal background is is very advantageous in that once you've created the model you need to question the model because one thing that i think a lot of deterministic programmers really battle with is that the concept of the model is a statistical model so now this thing has a probability of being correct it's not guaranteed. It's not statistic. It's 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 not deterministic. It'll give you the answer, but the answer is a probable answer, and that probable answer may be good enough in some scenarios, but not good enough in other scenarios. And so I think this 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 skill of questioning the model, questioning the algorithm, not just once when you create it, but in a ongoing supervisory way, is a critical skill to have when you're working in the AI space. So I think we're just kind of scratching the surface here, but yeah. kind of, I think you can hear that certainly from my perspective, the role of the data scientist in programming, although you, you're kind of still solving problems, you're doing it in a very different way. And I think the skills that you have to have, and certainly the big picture thinking that you have to have, I think in some ways quite different from the traditional sort of deterministic way of problem solving. Yeah. 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 No, I feel you. That really makes sense. Uh, yeah. And this is such an important point. I think um, I came to a meetup that you spoke at, Kieran, and this whole issue of explainable AI came up. And um, it's, it's about um, not just accepting what, the, what we told, what recommendations come from the AI, but rather to uh, expect um, the AI to give us a reason why it came up with the recommendation. And of course, that's a much harder problem. You don't just throw data at the, um, at the algorithm and get an answer. You have to build in some way to say why you got to that answer. Correct. Absolutely. Correct. Um, this is a really interesting discussion and one I'm sure we could go on for, a, for, for much longer, but I'd like to turn a bit to skills. And I know you've touched on some of this, uh, Cliff, but um, uh, you and I have long been passionate about digital skills in our economy, and it's um, something we've worked on together. And I'd like to ask uh, what your thoughts are in terms of how the modern developer should go about getting skills and what skills they should get and uh, uh, given what you've said i'll put the term modern developer into quotes and the modern something but how should such a person get skills and what skills would they need yeah as, as you said prof i think we, we've spent a bunch of time working on that um my opinion on that is is that i think first of all for, for the person wanting to become that modern developer, I think they do need to think about their passion, right? I, I, I think people entering this world, and I think Karen's a great example of somebody who may not have had a formal training in that world, but there's something that obviously drew you into wanting to solve problems, the fascination of AI. I'm sure, Karen, that was something that was inherent in you, right? Nobody taught you that. You, you were kind of drawn to that world. And so, and so, so to me, that 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 passion piece, that 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 curiosity, that willing to want to be in in, in that world, is really important. Um, I, I, I am a firm believer of you will do well if you have a passion for what you do. Yeah. And and I think so. So that is a skill that I think is required, but can never be taught. I think it's just a measure. And I think once you have that, you know, there are lots of opportunities these days to gain formal skills. Um, I think 
I think depending on, on the path you've chosen, we've, and we spoke at length at the beginning about how the role of sort of this modern developer is becoming very broad. You know, everything from, let's call it the business composer down to the operating system developer. I, I think, you know, no person knows right at the beginning exactly what they want to do. But certainly I think to start, you know, at a certain point and finding and, and having access to, 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 to skills at that point is really important. One of the things that, that, that I learned and, and one of the programs I put in place at Microsoft was this concept of sort of learning through mentorship. And so yeah. we built a program called the App Factory. Um, and I think we, we placed the, the very first App Factory that we built at the JCSE with Prof at the time was this concept of taking people who, who wanted to become developers and then teaching them through practical immersion. So maybe somebody had a degree, maybe somebody didn't have a degree, maybe somebody had gone to Vega, and these are all real examples of people that that, that, that we put through the App Factory. We put them into a program with a bunch of other like-minded people and some mentors, and they just wrote code all day and they got feedback on how they wrote code. They took on real life projects and were mentored through that. They had a bunch of time to do self-learning. And I think in today's age, the access to information you have in the, in, in the internet is just so incredible where you really can figure out most things yourselves. But in that program, we built several hundred very successful software engineers. And that just proved to me that with the right mentorship, with the right feedback, and with the right mixture of practical immersion, and mentorship, you can really produce a very, very good software engineer. But I come back to the point that the people that we chose had passion for what they for what they did and how they worked. Yeah, I think that's such a key point you make. And um, if we talking about handing on the baton, I think that's really one of the the key learnings that you and I have uh, spoken about. Um, but to be brutally honest, I think looking at our national skills pipeline in the digital space, I, I, um, I think it's broken. I think our skills pipeline is broken. And uh, what would you say needs to be done uh, beyond the specific example you've given us of the App Factory, but what more generally could be done by corporates and government to fix our national digital skills pipeline? Yeah, again, Prof, it's a great question. And I, and I think I do share, I do share your thought that, um, that we really need to do something. Uh, look, first of all, I, I think, I think there is a, there is an onus on, on, on our formal education environments, both at the school level and at the tertiary level, I, I guess, to, to think about the type of skills they're producing. I think I think math and science is really important in any of these technical in technical sort of skills, and you I think having a good solid foundation is certainly the the, the entry point in many cases of of uh, of learning. Um, sort of post that, I, I think kind of you you get into the world where where people have skills in the base skills, but how do they get better at, at kind of finding a, a career and a path? And, and, I, and, and, and I, as I talked about previously, one of the things we did with our App Factory project is that we realized that in order to, to, to invest in building the, the next generation, you actually have to take some time and some effort to mentor and grow people. And, 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 our, and our philosophy there was pretty simple, right? If you, if you actually give people the time to have proper mentorship and give them access to the ability to self-learn, we had the we, we had the, the the thinking is that is that people would grow in an accelerated way, and and we certainly proved that. I, I, I think with with the right with the right access and with the right mentors, um, people who have a passion accelerate their growth, and so yeah. I, I think there is a responsibility on corporates and 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 certainly the work sector to really take this concept of internship seriously. I think in many cases, interns are sort of left on the side, give, being given menial pieces of work to do, and really don't get much attention from the senior people in the organization. And, and therefore, their learning is, is slow. And, and often, they get, uh, they get cited for being 
you know, not growing quickly enough, et cetera, et cetera. But, but we certainly proved that if you give people the right, put people in the right environment and give them the right feedback, you, you really can accelerate that growth. So, so that's the one thing. I, I also think coming back to your comment about the environment, I do think we need to start looking critically at the type of skills we are teaching our children in the formative years, right? Uh, I, I think kind of having a broader exposure to the way certainly technology is going, computing is going, and and teaching people to think themselves, to research themselves, and giving them the the tools and technologies to do that is critical. And one of the reasons I'm quite passionate about that is that I think in some ways our world is at an inflection point. I think mm. to be digitally inclusive going forward and to be seen as a country in, in, in the digitally inclusive world, these are going to become base, almost infrastructure skills requirements. And so if we don't get serious about this and think about how, how we equip our next generation of workforce to play in this world, I fear that we may be left behind. You know, the world is very quickly moving from what we, I guess what we would call a resource economy, when in many cases, South Africa could rely on the fact that we produced a large amount of gold and had very successful, you know, industrial operations to participating in the, in the information age. But to participate in the information age means that you have means that you have a society that produces and it certainly can equip its citizens to participate in the information age. And I think that's a large part of what we have to think about as a country is how do we equip you know, our future generation to participate viably in the information age. And a lot of what I'm talking about in the, in the education side really is those skills so that we can participate as a first world citizen in the information age of the world and not just be left behind as a country and kind of be left on the bottom end of the continent as a resource, you know, where we, where the rest of the world is really only buying resources from us so that they can participate in the information age. That's my biggest fear. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I really like that. Um, I know that you've, you've done some work with a, a company uh, when you were at Microsoft, obviously, um, uh, called BizSpark, right? Which sort of supported a bunch of, of startups, it's like more than 3,000 or like a really <laughs> ridiculous number. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about like what it was, like the work that you did, some of the success stories? Because I think that ties in quite nicely with this responsibility that you're talking about, at least on, on business. So that sounds really cool. Yeah, it's a great lead in Karen. Thanks. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, I, I guess part, part of, so, so we started with this app factory concept where we taught young people to, to, to be developers. But the kind of the next logical step, if you're going to think about sort of how a country thrives in the digital age, is how does it how does it think about innovation and how does it think about how does right. it think about startups? And and and, and you, you can read many many books, and certainly it's true for South Africa, is that you know the SME sector, the self-employed sector, really is the biggest employer in the country by a long way. So if you can help sort of people create their own jobs, be self-employed, start their own businesses. That is honestly the dream of, 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 of many growing economies. Yeah. So, so one of the things we were lucky enough to do when I was there was we, we put a proposal in front of the jobs fund and said, we, we think we have some latent potential in the country in terms of software startups. And we partnered with the, with the jobs fund at the time and a bunch of accelerators and incubators in South Africa to, to run that program. And our thinking really was if we could find entrepreneurs and support them to take their to take their ideas uh, to market, help them starting their businesses. That would be a really cool thing. And so our program was really completely focused on software startups on entrepreneurs, uh, giving them a bunch of free software, giving them you know a bunch of free cloud resources, and then partnering with incubators and and, and accelerators to help them with things like business mentorship, legal mentorship. You know, all the things that are really, really tough when you're a standalone business or a business of two or three people trying to get yourself off the ground. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, it was a really cool program. Uh, you know, we, we, we mentored a whole bunch of, of businesses. Many of them didn't make it. Quite a few of them made it. You know, lots of them made it. Um, and, 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 and we kind of had the philosophy that the success would come from the entrepreneurs that we taught to run their own businesses, 
you know, the, right. the, the interesting thing about entrepreneurship is that you don't always succeed, but you always take your skills with you, even if you fail. And so yeah. we kind of also had the philosophy is that even if the businesses fail, we're teaching the entrepreneur skills to go and open their next business or even go and get a job at a corporate because they are much more well-rounded individuals now. They've learned how to write software. They've learned how to run a business. Getting getting a job would be so much easier for them. And so we had a, we had a whole bunch of successes. You know, we, we had a, a bunch of companies come out the top of that, uh, launch successful apps, produce successful solutions. But in many cases, I think about the success personally as the people we touched and the people that, that, that learned how to run businesses, learned how to, learned how to, how to start there and, and run their own environments. And even if they chose not to do that afterwards and go and get a job, I still see, see that as a success. And I, and I think in many cases, that is the catalyst we need. I think if we can help young businesses get off the ground, unlock the innovation that we know is here right we we live on this continent we know how creative people are how how, how clever how clever our our people are at creating solutions i mean we, we we are surrounded by people who 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 come up with innovative solutions for the problems that we face um and if we can get build a culture of kind of getting like-minded people together to commercialize those solutions i think would be very 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 well placed on the world stage yes and i i have to say congratulations to you and your team at microsoft for programs like the spark and app factory they certainly moved the needle and then um two years ago you did what some call eat your own dog food or drink your own champagne when you left a very good job a great job in the corporate sector and you decided to to go out and start your own startup and um i wonder if you've got any uh words of advice or anything to say to people who do take that very brave step of moving out of the corporate world and into their own startup yeah again great 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 personal question thank you prof um yeah, it's, I mean, I, I guess you said it, right? I think you know, when you're in a corporate environment, you you run these programs, you give a lot of advice, but there's nothing like being on the other side. And I, I'd always wanted to run and, and, and build my own business. It was kind of a passion of mine. And uh, a colleague of mine who I'd worked with for many years at Microsoft and I eventually decided to do that together. Um, our current business is... Uh, is probably is probably going to shut itself down and we're busy starting a new one. So I guess my my first lesson in startup world is that you really need to learn to roll with the the successes and the failures and and you need to make decisions quickly on what works and what doesn't work. Um, it, you know, it's a super interesting journey because you you learn very quickly when you start your own business that. Um, you know, it, it really is all about what you can do or you and your team can do. And that you, 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 you learn very quickly about the responsibility you have and the breadth of the job. Certainly smaller startups, people do all jobs at once, right? So mm -hmm. you may call yourself the CTO, but you're also the network engineer and you're the administrator of the chairs and you worry about cash mm -hmm. flow and all of those things. So one of the things are in a small business that you learn that you learn is that you know you're a you're a very closely in the team and you really work together on pretty much everything but the freedom you have running your own business is super interesting it's 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 liberating in some respects and you you realize that that you can make decisions very quickly and move very quickly and i guess that's some wise why why startups are successful is that they're 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 much more agile than, than corporates could be and, and you know, Karen talked a little bit about you know some of the way she made decisions and you know investment committees and things like that you know startups you you just make those decisions in five minutes if you need to sometimes mm. I guess from an advice point of view I think if you have an itch to be an entrepreneur you want to try it at some point in your life I think it's an incredible experience I think you get to work on some really interesting projects. You know, there's there's nothing like uh, something being really personal until you own it and have responsibility for it yourself. So th there's a lot of there's a lot of great personal energy you take a, a, around uh, doing a startup. Uh, I guess on the negative side, it's quite risky. So uh, 
certainly in, in, in today's environment. But uh, I think maybe, you know, I, I was reading a bunch of stuff the other days about uh, about the age of most successful entrepreneurs. And it seems that most successful startups are, are run by people who've had a couple of years of experience in the corporate world just to kind of hone those skills, build a bit of build a bit of capital, maybe that they can afford to do that and then go and give it a go. So I, I, I would say, you know, give it a go if, it, if it's in you. Uh, just don't be naive about uh, don't, don't think it's going to be the same environment as you do have in your sort of in, in, in your corporate job, because it is very different. Yeah, and that's uh, such good advice. And I can't can't remember who said it, but someone said, if you've been in a hundred failed startups, you don't uh, think of it as failed startups, but it's a hundred learnt lessons. So every um, rock in the road is a lesson learnt, and that's a good piece of advice. Absolutely, and I think I think in some you know if if you read the uh, if you read if you read books about startup cultures in in both you know Silicon Valley and Israel and, and some of the eastern countries. That that mantra string is, is very strong around, you know, wanting to have people who've been there tried it and maybe not always succeeded because that's where your life lessons come from, right? Uh, as someone who is like not necessarily an entrepreneur themselves, but is is very sort of uh, admiring of entrepreneurs, um, I think. Yeah, a lot of what you speak to is also just the thing about like spirits and character and the way in which you carry yourself, even if it's not necessarily for the purpose of starting your own business. Um, so yeah, I think that whole, whole idea around like, you know, the way in which you shift your perspective from like, oh my gosh, I failed a million times versus like, oh my gosh, I learned a million times. What a wonderful and fulfilling experience. Yeah. Uh, I think just makes things. Yeah, makes doing life easier. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and, and it's 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 a, such an interesting comment, Karen, because I think, and I think maybe that's also a little bit of a South African thing. I think sometimes, sure. and, and in some ways, a corporate thing is is that sometimes we're so afraid of failure, we won't take a risk. Mm. Mm. And, and I think sometimes that can be your biggest challenge to being successful, both in a in a startup world, but also in a corporate world, right? I think if, if you've given the freedom to try something, even if it fails, you will learn a lot. Uh, I, I think what, what we need to do is give people the ability to fail without being branded as a failure, and we'll have a lot more innovation. <laughs> exactly. exactly, yeah, because so the goal important. is not to not be scared. It's to be scared and still do the thing. Exactly. Um, yeah. Exactly. Um, Cliff, we, we're coming to the end of our discussion, and I'd like to to just broaden it out a bit and um, uh, you've not only been part of the South African uh, software and uh, digital economy but you've also had quite a lot of involvement across Africa and across the world and I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of how our South African digital ecosystem compares with that in uh, the rest of Africa and internationally. Yeah, it's a nice question, Prof. Um, I, if I were to summarize it, I would probably say that I think South African sort of participants in the in, in the software space or the digital space tend to be really good, broad problem solvers. I think just because of the nature of the number of skills that we have, um, our exposure to lots and lots of different types of technologies, I find the South African developers tend to be really, really good breadth understanding developers. So they they know a lot about a lot of different things. Um, that being said, if I contrast us to some of the some of sort of the continental uh, players, I, I, I still think I still think we 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 hold ourselves very well in terms of our skill set, our innovation, our technology understanding. With with much of the continent, there are definitely pockets of excellence. If you look at sort of what's happening in Kenya, maybe some of the work that's happening in Rwanda, so there are definitely pockets of excellence in the in the in the continent. But I think in general, the kind of if you look at it, look at it across the continent, I think South Africa still carries itself incredibly well in terms of the quality of the skills that we have. Mm. If I contrast that to sort of my experience working in a multinational and look at sort of some of the international devs. 
I think what tends to happen because the because the playing field is is much bigger and the skill set is much bigger. I found that people specialize much quicker, um, and, and therefore you get people with much deeper skill set, but 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 because they're deeper, they're not as broad as our South African developers, and that's a pro and a con in some respects, right? Because you know, I, I would often interact with some of the product teams at Microsoft. And, um, you know, I, re I remember people who had spent uh, speaking to one guy uh, once who'd spent his entire career working on the print spooler in C++ of the Windows <laughs> operating system. That, that defined his career. So you, there was nothing you couldn't tell this guy about how the print spooler worked. But as soon as you raised the conversation above you know, what was happening on the cloud, he had no idea. So uh, it, it, it's kind of interesting to see how, how the, the depth and the, the, the specific focus breeds, you know, real specialism or a real speciality, but it also has a negative point. Mm -hmm. and, 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 I, and, and again, I, you know, having a bunch of people who've worked for me move overseas and work in, work in product teams, that's the one kind of consistent comment that I've heard is that, they that they've had to specialize in a very in an area and become very good at that. And the last kind of point I would tease out is that is that I think just because of the size of our market, we're not always exposed to the to the size or the or the or the scale of, of some of the computing that we do see overseas. So another guy who used to work for me now works at Amazon, works on. Uh, on, on some of the video streaming technology. And, he, and and sometimes when I talk to him, I talk to him about the number of users he has on his system. You know, and it's absolutely mind-blowing, right? I mean, they're talking hundreds of millions of users at any point in time. And so I, I think sometimes we don't always see the breadth or the scale of, of what computing solutions have or the impact that they have. Um, and I think that's just a, a, you know, a factor of the size of our market. So if I were to kind of summarize it, that's the way I think about it. Uh, but but in general, I, I find South African developers, just because of our training, our background, and our kind of can fix can fix it all sort of <laughs> culture to be really, really good problem solvers. And I still maintain to this day that problem solving is probably the biggest requirement you need to be a good software developer. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And um, as you know, we at the JCSE, do an annual skills survey and what it has consistently shown is that a typical South African developer or digital professional will do a range of jobs in the software development or system development life cycle. So they might do some design, some development, some testing, some project management and that's all wrapped into one person. and. At the same time, they would work at, in different technologies and different parts of the technology stack. And this isn't typical of um, developers in most other parts of the world. So we do have very different digital professionals locally. Yeah, spot on. So we come back to our metaphor of life as a relay race. and. We've heard how you picked up the baton, how you've done really well in carrying it through life's journey. And although your race is still far from done, uh, what would you say if you were handing over your baton to Karen and her generation of engaged digital professionals? What advice would you give them? Yeah, nice question. Thanks. Um, I, I guess just kind of speaking sort of and thinking about that question as you were posing it, I like to think about it the way I, I structure some of my mentorship sessions with, with the people I still work with. I think my number one feedback to lots of young people today is just believe in your own abilities. I find, I find sometimes like we're often held back by our, our, our own, like it's our own demons inside us that said, I'm not good enough or, I'm not sure about this. And I think once you cross that divide, uh, once you cross the, the syndrome of believing in yourself deeply, you really, really can achieve incredible things. Um, the, the, 
the other thing I think about a lot, um, and, and I guess this is a personal life lesson that I try to impart often, is that many young people coming into, especially into larger organizations, often believe that their leaders have all the answers. They believe that their leaders are, have many years of experience and that the guy running the company is an incredible genius. And, you know, if you could speak to him, you could ask him any question and he would give you any answer. And some of the realization I had moving up the ranks and eventually becoming a leader in an organization is that you don't always have all the answers. Um, and then I think young people in the organization, it kind of comes back to believing in your own abilities. If you believe passionately in something, you know, you probably in the area that you work in, in your organization, probably know more about the problem you're trying to solve or the job you're trying to do than your manager or your ma definitely than your manager's manager. And if you have the confidence to believe in that, you can drive towards things that you believe in and deliver results that are incredible. Don't always ask for permission, right? Of course, there are times when you need to ask for permission, when you need to spend a bunch of money or you need to do certain things. But don't always, as a young person, think that the leader has all the answers. Sometimes you have more answers than the leader and you should take responsibility in doing that. The other, the other thing that, I, that I, I personally feel very passionate about is question the status quo. So, mm. you know, I think sometimes, again, I, I guess a, a, it's, a, it's a product of, of, of the way we brought up sometimes is that you're in an environment and it works the way it works. But I think people who question the way it works, ask questions, listens to answers, often come up with ways of working and doing things that are not the normal, right? And that's where the that's where the amazing stuff happens, right? Where you have the strength and the and I guess it comes back to believing in your own abilities again, to kind of ask people, well, why do we do it like this? Well, because it's always been done like that is not a good answer, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think it kind of leads with understanding the bigger picture, but I think questioning for me is a skill that is often not used enough. I think I think we we often expect to be told what to do and we do it. And I think we should question more. And and the and the last two things that that I, I again that I'm I'm really passionate about it, it, the one that's very big for me is humility. Um, I, I find often certainly when people start having a little bit of success they really get full of themselves quite quickly and 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 i think that is a quality that i really in my in my opinion i i i really dislike i think people who remain humble irrespective of what they achieved who take the time to thank the people they work with to acknowledge their colleagues are people who will go much further in life um i, I think you know, understanding the environment that you work in, your colleagues, and your colleagues are not always just your direct team, right? It's the tea lady who works in the tea room. It's the cleaners who work in your building. I think having the humility to understand that team that you work in and acknowledging those people and seeing them as part of your team is really, really important. And the last, the last piece of advice I have is don't be impatient. I think one of the things that I think today's generation is probably guilty of is this concept of instant success or instant gratification. Yep, guilty as charged. <laughs> so I knew I might touch it over there, right, Karen? <laughs> but if you think about it, if you think about people who really are successful, in many cases we see them in the lights and the shine and the glitter when they've achieved something big. But we don't see the years of hard work or the all the effort that put in and i come back to my jeffrey hinton example right of him kind of believing in ai and the neural net as a concept for so many years being knocked down by his colleagues but he had the determination to do it and now he's the hero of ai right yeah. so now everybody puts him up in lights and but if you look at what he had he was not impatient he knew that he was on the right track he believed in it and he did something that was worth doing so my last piece of advice is do something that's worth doing. Don't be impatient about it. Have the fortitude to see it through and your success will come. That's such great advice. And uh, uh, what, um, Karen, what do you think of those batons? I mean, I'm just trying to sprint up and catch it. Yeah, that sounds good. That's really good. I like that. Thank you so much. So Cliff, uh, thank you so much for your time and thank you for being part of our podcast. 
and um, I wish you luck going forward in your next startup or your next umpteen startups. And um, it's been a pleasure working with you, and I hope you carry on doing that for a long time as well. Thank you, Prof, and thank you, Karen. Thank you for the conversation. It's really yeah, inspiring. Thank you. This podcast is a Grand Geeks production. It is produced by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and edited by Evan Wigdorowitz. It is presented by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and Karen Gammy. Music is done by Callum Cool and logo designed by Evan Wigdorowitz. The companion website is at www.softwareengineer.org.za. Thank you.